Hello, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens, the podcast where I talk about things like philosophy and politics and psychology and race and mental health and that kind of stuff. Today, I sat down with Professor Graham Priest, who is a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York, as well as Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne. Graham's interests are very, very wide-ranging, from things like Buddhist ethics to political philosophy to metaphilosophy, which is the philosophy of philosophy, to mathematics, to logic, and all things in between. We had a very wide-ranging conversation. It's very exciting. There's a lot of kind of practical uh, advice that can be drawn from the Buddhist philosophy that we discuss, as well as an interesting kind of take on the state of the world, um, where Graham discusses a new book that he's writing, uh, which is on political philosophy. Um, so there's a lot to take from this conversation, um, and I think it would be very interesting for anyone who has kind of any curiosity about anything in the world. Um, before I play you the episode, a few quick notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it in a number of ways. You can do so, firstly, via Patreon, which is a great platform, very easy to use, and it will allow me to continue to afford running the podcast and paying for all of the things that are required like hosting and equipment and that kind of stuff Um, if you'd like to support it through patreon there'll be a link in the bio of this episode otherwise you can go on my website www.alex.co and you can also support through uh, through paypal Um, and the second thing you can do is follow me on instagram at alex listens i guess the final thing you can do is tell someone about the podcast because that would really help me out and i'd really appreciate it um, that's all. Enjoy the episode. Bye. All right, well, Graham, hello. Hi, Alex. How are you? Um, well, it's uh, I'm in New York, and it's um, early Sunday night. Um New York is a very strange city at the moment because, you know, we've been locked down partly or totally for nine months now. And uh, it's not going to get any better until, you know, at least four or five months into the next year, maybe longer. So it's a kind of strange life, but we've accommodated to the new normal. Yeah, right. What I actually don't, what's the vibe like at the moment? Are people doing things? In New York? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of things we associate with New York are closed down. Okay. Most music venues, um, theaters, opera, clubs. Um, I think some of the museums have now opened uh, with limited admission. So the place is quite empty. Uh, you know, I've never seen it like this. So, in some sense, it's the sea is kind of half alive. Hmm. Has that has that impacted on your work? Has that changed how you're doing philosophy at the moment? Have you do you feel like because I I certainly felt like writing essays from afar, writing them in my room in this strange cage that I had to make myself during the lockdown. I felt like that really impacted how I thought about philosophy. But yeah, what, what, what's it been like for you and your, your work? Well, um, we've been online now for about nine months. So the, the virus hit us 
um, really in March. And uh, that was sort of midway through the spring semester. So we finished that on Zoom, like you know, so many things in life. Then I taught a course in Melbourne over uh, your winter in July, which was obviously on Zoom. I would, I would normally be in Australia then, but I couldn't be, so I had to be on Zoom. And then I more or less just finished this, um, this last semester on Zoom. So it's all been on Zoom. Okay. Um, obviously, that's affected exactly how you proceed. Uh, it hasn't been as bad as I'd feared. Um, it's always nicer to be, you know, face to face. But people understand that you have to, it can't be like that at the moment for obvious reasons. Um, and people, generally speaking, I think here have adapted to the fact that it has to be like that. You know, you, you have to be patient because the electronic stuff doesn't always work fast or sometimes doesn't work. Um, but I don't think it's really affected um, for the philosophy we've been doing as such. You know, we've been, we've been running seminars in the usual way and um, doing the things you do when you do philosophy, you know, reading, arguing, talking, coming up with ideas. Um, so that, that hasn't changed that much. Hmm. That's good to hear. I was, yeah, I was worried that it was going to really um, have a big impact on like the togetherness of people but i guess zoom i feel like yeah zoom in a strange way has kind of been okay and been a, a done a reasonably or surprisingly good job of kind of bringing people together but anyway anyway enough pandemic talk for now um yeah so i guess uh i i am especially interested in i find i find that philosophers who have gone who have moved to philosophy from kind of adjacent disciplines often have very interesting things to say and often have very interesting lives and often more <laughs> interesting people. Um, have you, so you, you were initially trained in maths. Um, how did you navigate from maths to philosophy? What was, what happened there? Yeah. Um, so my first degree was mainly mathematics, although I did some philosophy as well. Um, and I got interested in logic. Uh, this is sort of um, a natural part of mathematics for someone with philosophical inclinations to be interested in. Um, and then I did my doctorate in mathematics in London uh, after I left Cambridge. And uh, it, was, it was in mathematical logic. So it was, it was sort of a natural transition. And by the time I'd finished that, I knew two things. Um, the first was that I was, wasn't a very good mathematician. And the second was that philosophy was a lot more fun. So my last year as a research student, I applied for lots of jobs, like most research students do. Um, and it looked like I wasn't going to get an offer of a job, but two jobs came up at the very last moment because departments have been left down. One was in a math department, one was in a philosophy department. And for me, it was a no brainer. I chose the philosophy department. Um, and I've, you know, I'm Norse again, I did, and I've, you know, been in philosophy departments the rest of my acad academic life, and I've had a, a blast. Hmm. Okay. And you have moved 
So I was, I was trying to put a finger on the pulse of your work, but had a really hard time doing that. And then I think you had also said as much in, in one of the things I read or in an interview of yours where you said something like, you know, you have, you're interested in like every part of philosophy, which is really cool. And I think I'm also like, you know, lots of things pique my interest, but it's kind of uh, hard for me especially because I'm an indecisive person to figure out what I should spend my time doing. So how have you, how have you kind of chosen the things that you do and where have you, have your interests radically changed as you've moved through your career or have they, you know, rested in the mathsy kind of stuff, um, logic? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where I started out because that's where I was coming from. Um, uh, although the first job I ever got was teaching not logic, but philosophy of science. Um, but obviously I was sort of working mainly in logic in logically related areas. And I honestly didn't know much philosophy. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd done a bit through my studies of logic and so on, but it was a very limited area. Um, but philosophy is a really interesting subject because... Um, there are connections between the different areas. Of course, there are many different areas of philosophy, metaphysics, ethics, political philosophy, um, aesthetics, you name them. Uh, and um, I guess once you've, when you do become acquainted with philosophy, these seem like rather different areas. But the more you study one area, the more you come to see that there are connections with other parts of philosophy. So, you know, if you work in logic, you will soon see there are connections with the philosophy language, with metaphysics, with epistemology. And then as you get into metaphysics or epistemology, you'll see there are connections with ethics. And then when you think about ethics, you'll see there are connections with, with, with political philosophy and so on. So um, working in an area will sort of, get you interested in the connected bits and then you sort of start thinking about those. And um, So if you're a curious person, I guess I always have been, it's very natural to, to feel interest to sort of move around. And I, I've never lost an interest. You know, I still work in logic and the kind of logic I worked in when I was um, in my first job. But uh, I've worked in so many other things now. And... Um, when I started teaching philosophy, I actually didn't know any, um, but I've learned nearly all the philosophy I know by teaching the damn thing. You know, something students never know is that a teacher learns much more than students. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've, I've really enjoyed learning about philosophy. And, uh, I'm continu continually learning about new areas. And, you know, there's, there's much more to philosophy than I can ever possibly know, let alone think about. Hmm. Right. And at the moment, what are you, because I know, I guess it seems like most of your, uh, most of the interviews that you have done seem to be about this dialethism stuff and your defense of it and the liar paradox and that kind of stuff, um, which, which I, I'd love to talk to you about, but maybe first is there, is that, would you would you describe 
would you say that that is the main thing that you have done in philosophy? Is that the main area where you've spent your time or do you, and is that the most important area for you or, or are there other things, other disciplines? I know you you do some Buddhist philosophy stuff and some Eastern philosophy. Is that, is that stuff more important for you? Um, where do you, yeah, where, what's, what's been most impactful, I guess? Yeah, uh, well, look, you're asking several questions there. Um, is it most important for me? No, I mean, it's all important for me. That's easy. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I suppose I became convinced in the correctness of dialectism very early in my career. Uh, really, you know, uh, in my first job uh, or, or before that. And so that's really what I started to work on intensively at first. Um, and that's probably what I'm best known for. Um, although I've written about lots of areas. I mean, the, probably nowadays there aren't many areas of philosophy I haven't written about. Um, some more than others, of course. Um, and I discovered the Asian traditions um, 25 years ago, it became interesting, most, particularly Buddhism. Buddhist philosophy interests me. Uh, I've done a lot of Buddhist work on Buddhist philosophy. Um, and so often when I'm asked to talk or write this about sort of Buddhist related ideas, so that, that's taken up quite a chunk of my time in the last 20 years or so. Um, but, you know, the, the last manuscript book manuscript I wrote which is now seeking a publisher was on political philosophy mm. so that's taken up a lot of my time for the last three years but as I say I've never lost an interest I, um, I've never stopped working on areas and uh, I'm always working on different areas even if I've got a big project like a book you know I'm always writing several smaller papers on all kinds of things which interest me mm. And what was your what what was your most recent book about on political philosophy? What were you talking about in that? Yeah, well, it's not quite a book yet. It's a manuscript. Okay. Uh, in search, it's a manuscript in search of a publisher, <laughs> um, and it's a slightly strange book because um, it brings together three intellectual traditions. Um, okay, let's step back a second. I don't think it's um, a deeply kept secret that the world is not in a very happy state at the moment. And I'm not talking about the pandemic, okay? Of course, that, that's not happy either. But, um, I mean, if you look around the world um, and you see how many people don't have enough to eat or a decent education, um, and you see that there are some enormously rich people in the world who have much more money than they can possibly use, uh, except to make more money, which doesn't do them much good. Um, and you see that there are a number of corrupt political systems. I shall name no names, but you can you know, choose your own. Um, you can see that there are a lot of political systems which really don't help people. But the leaders are there to line their own pockets. Okay, so the, the world is not a happy place. Now, um, I, I think 
There are many reasons for this, many interacting reasons. But in my book, one of the major reasons is capitalism, because um, so much of the unfortunate aspects of life, I think, are traceable back to the drive that capitalism has to make a profit. Um, and the fact that it encourages people to just um, make money for themselves and so on. So the book is very much an anti-capitalist book. And what, what the book is about is uh, two things. First of all, giving an analysis of how we, of the current unhappy situation that we're in, and then where we go from here to make things better. So it, it draws on aspects of Marxist philosophy, um, but it has an undergirding of Buddhist ethics that's the way I got, I got interested in Buddhist ethics and I started to wonder, you know, if you subscribe to Buddhist ethics, what, what political implications does this have? So it's a mixture of Marxist theory and um, Buddhist ethics. And then when it comes to the question of where we should go from here, there's a lot of anarchist thinking as well. So it's a strange fusion of uh, Marxist thought, aspects of Marxist thought, aspects of Mark, uh, Buddhist ethics and aspects of anarchist thinking. Um, so it's, it's an analysis of what's wrong with the world and where we could go drawing those three intellectual traditions. Yeah, right, right. And uh, why now? Why, why are you writing this now? Uh, is there, because presumably, you know, I mean, we've been living under neoliberal capitalism for a while. Um, and there have been, you know, systems that have drawn heavy, heavy divides between groups and, you know, isolated wealth to the minority for a while. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm curious as to, yeah, do you, because it seems like there's, yeah, there's a lot of and, and this is a good thing. There's a lot of literature that seems to be coming out. At least maybe I've only been aware of it because I've only kind of become intellectually curious, you know, post high school. But it seems like recently there's been a wave of kind of this emancipatory post, or tr you know, this emancipatory political philosophy that's trying to carve an image of a post-capitalist society or a, a more reformed capitalist society or something like that, a better, a more equally structured one. So, yeah, um, why was, what pushed you to, to do that? What pushed you to kind of do, to turn to political philosophy? Well, there, there are two questions there. There's an institutional question about the, where philosophy is going at the moment. And there's a question about how, how I got there. Okay, mm. these are obviously different. Um, let, let's deal with the personal thing first. Uh, as, as I've already said, um, I've, I've sort of moved through the philosophical landscape just because I was working on one thing and I realised there's something else that was worth talking about. Um, and so I got into political philosophy by that route. So I was writing a book on metaphysics um, so I started to write some stuff on Buddhist metaphysics that related to it. And then 
some of that connected with topics in Buddhist ethics. So I wrote about Buddhist ethics. And then I started to think about the ramifications of Buddhist ethics for political philosophy. So I figured it was kind of time to think about that, which I did. Um, although just before I finish the, the sort of personal story, um, you know, I, I've spent most of my academic life writing in areas of philosophy which I find fascinating, but they're kind of relatively esoteric. Um, you know, they don't affect people's lives much. Um, logic, metaphysics. Um, so I figured it was about time to write on something important. <laughs> um, and, you know, the question of... Um, the kind of world we live in, um, how it functions, how it structures, what it does to people. I mean, it's something that is integral to everybody's life, how much they might think about it or try not to think about it. Yeah. Um, turning to the institutional question, um, I think probably there is more that's being written in these areas now than there used to be. I mean you'd have to do a kind of an analysis of the literature to figure out whether that's true. But uh, my impression is you're probably right. Um, there are a number of philosophers, for example, who've made their mark in um, philosophy language, uh, metaphysics, who are now doing some stuff in political philosophy or ethics. Uh, why is this happening? Um, probably there are many reasons, but one is this. If you look at ethics and political philosophy for most of the time in the second half of the 20th century, it was focused on kind of what I think of as meta-debates. So ethics got kind of identified with meta-ethics. Um, political philosophy got kind of identified with Rawls theory of justice or whatever, you know. So these are all kind of meta debates about the nature of justice, the nature of goodness, uh, the nature of um, morality and so on. Um, people have forgotten that that's not ethics, that's meta ethics. Um, why did philosophy make that term? Well, there are probably a number of different reasons, but one was that it, ethics came in for a lot of bad rap in the first half of the 20th century because of things like positivism. Um, but what we've seen, and I think it's a move much for the better, is that, you know, um, towards the end of the 20th century, there was a move back towards kind of first order issues, not second order issues, as people remembered what ethics and politics is all about. You know, of course, there are some traditions that never forgot this, like, like the Marxist traditions and, and whatever. Um, but at least in Anglo philosophy, uh, we started to see the development of so-called applied ethics, um, which is a misnomer because applied ethics is ethics. Okay, it's not, it's the meta-ethics, which is ethics. Um, and that naturally leads to an interest in um, a lot of issues in political philosophy. And so on. so I, I think what we've seen is that people have become engaged with or re-engaged with ethics and its political spin-offs uh, in a way that they probably weren't in the 1950s and 1960s, at least in the Anglo tradition. Uh, so I think that's an important part of the 
sociological situation about philosophy that you kind of gestured at. Hmm. And have you have you felt as though uh, trying to, I guess, move away from or d- trying to do more ethics as opposed to meta-ethics, have you felt as though that has actually had an impact on your behavior or the way you move through the world? Because I guess one really perplexing thing for me has been, you know, I guess it seems like there have been some really great ethicists who have come out of Melbourne University, like Peter Singer. I guess he's one of the most renowned ethicists in the world at the moment. Um, and I I have been deeply moved by his philosophy um, and his philosophies, especially his stuff about, you know, animal ethics. Um, but paradoxically, um, often, th- often it takes huge emotional resources to translate the kind of engagement with the ethics into changes of behavior. And that's been a really kind of upsetting, but also extremely interesting thing that has become clearer and clearer to me as I've spent more time studying ethics that, you know, it's one thing to logically accept a premise or some, or or a set of arguments or something. And it's a totally other thing to allow it or to invite it into your world such that it changes your behavior. So, uh, yeah. What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, there are a number of uh, academic philosophers, of well, ethicists, who have taken political action, and Peter's obviously one of them, uh, because you know he he not only writes, but he has organised various socio-political schemes to um, try to push things along in the way that he thinks that they should be pushed, and I think that that's great. Um, personally, I can't. I've never been a political activist. Um, and I can't say that I've ever done sort of political things um, apart from think about them. Hmm. Do I feel bad about that? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but my life's not over yet. Well, uh, unless I catch COVID and, you know, fall off my perch in the next few weeks. Um, so there's still time for me to do things. You know, I'm never going to be out there on the stumps. I'm not that kind of person. I'm never going to be standing for office. Um, but you can, you can pursue political ends in many ways. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and you said something interesting before, uh, that kind of got me thinking. You said something like, um, earlier in your career, you spent a lot of time, um, working with, I think you said esoteric and maybe more abstract, philosophies um and i guess to me not not kind of having a full understanding of the chronology of your you know where you spent your time studying what but i guess i was i imagined that buddhist philosophy especially because of you know the mindfulness and and that kind of stuff would have had huge uh and kind of tangible impact on like your experience of things and of one's experience of things. So, yeah, I guess how, um, what, uh, yeah, I guess how, how, how are you still engaged with Buddhist philosophy? Um, what, what kind of uh, things that are adjacent to that are you still 
participating in. Mm. Well, uh, you're absolutely right that Buddhist philosophy is not esoteric. I mean, Buddhist philosophy is absolutely centrally about how you live um, the problems that you face, that everybody else faces, an analysis of why, things you can do to make them better, what you should be doing to help other people to make their lives better. I mean, this, this, is, this is absolutely core Buddhism. Um, and of course, it's backed up with all kinds of metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of language, etc., etc. Um, but in the end, it, it, it is a bit of philosophy about how to live. Okay. Um, okay. When I started getting interested in Buddhist philosophy, I didn't know much about Buddhism. Um, and I wouldn't claim to be a Buddhist now. Uh, but I might be a kind of fellow traveller because as I've thought more about these issues, um, you know, the Buddhist analysis of the world, of what it means to be a person, um, why our life is so unsatisfactory in many ways, um, I've come to think that there's a, a lot of truth in Buddhist ideas. Um, and uh, to the extent that I've become persuaded by that, uh, I guess it has informed the way I live my life in a certain sense. Um, as I say, I'm not a Buddhist, but uh, it's helped me think through what the hell I'm doing in this existence and what I should be doing. And the, the I mean, the book on political philosophy is an example of that. You know, it's, that that came out of my thinking about the political ramifications that Buddhist ethics has. Of course, you know, I draw on other things like my interest in Marx and so on. Um, but the Buddhist stuff certainly, you know, made me think about those important issues. Hmm. Yeah, and one thing that, uh, yeah, okay, okay, because I feel like accidentally I have been introduced to um buddhist modes of thinking mostly curiously through like psychotherapy um which which is yeah which is puzzling because you'd imagine that you know the kind of colleges the medical colleges would be so resistant <laughs> to saying that what they're doing is um you know buddhist appealing to Buddhist practices. But anyway, um, yeah, I guess one, one thing that's been very interesting for me is seeing the kind of co-opting of, of words that one would so typically associate with Buddhism, like mindfulness, uh, by, I guess, essentially humongous capitalist organizations that are trying to that are not that are definitely not trying to um, answer questions of you know what is the purpose of existence and what why are we here, but instead are trying to I don't know accelerate profits or you know make people as efficient as possible. Um, yeah, and I guess I wondered whether you had had any thoughts on 
on that, on the kind of the, yeah, the co-opting of, of, uh, and the kind of redefining and reshaping of mindfulness, because presumably I'm not, I'm not an expert in Buddhist ethics, but presumably mindfulness for the Buddhist isn't similar, isn't that similar to mindfulness for the, the kind of efficiency hungry capitalist? No. So look, I mean, two things. First of all, um, there's a lot of useful practical stuff in Buddhism about, you know, um, I mean, the meditation stuff is an obvious example, but uh, I mean, you know, what, one of the noble truths is stuff you can do to improve your life. Um, you don't have to necessarily be a Buddhist to think they're good things to improve your life. So they have been put up by a number of people who want to improve people's lives, like doctors and psychologists and so on. Uh, and if they do what they are aimed at doing, then that's obviously a good idea. You don't have to be a Buddhist to think these are good things. Um, but uh, the second thing is that uh, there is now an enormous mindfulness industry, which you just alluded to. Um, okay, so capitalism will do anything it can to make profit. Okay, that's the point of capitalism, right? Um, and of course, if it can see a way of exploiting an idea to make money, it will do that. So, so you've seen all these companies which pushed what they call mindfulness um, either because they can you know, sell it to people and make money or because they can persuade people that if um, companies can use mindfulness, they can increase their productivity. Increase their productivity. Um, uh, so um, a lot of the stuff that goes on in sort of mindfulness training is precisely... Um, you know, things which uh, they think will be profitable for their businesses or they, at least they can sell to other people to make their businesses more profitable. And it must be said that that has actually very little to do with mindfulness in the Buddhist sense. You know, it's stuff like, well, learn to relax, crawl, control your breathing, make your mind blank, you know, and then when you're finished, go back to your desk and you'll be more productive. Okay, that has actually very little to do with Buddhist mindfulness. Buddhist mindfulness is... Is not just sort of zooming out and relaxing, uh, but you know that's one aspect of it. But it's also about understanding the world in which you live. And there are many kinds of meditation are quite cognitive. They're about thinking about things in the world, understanding them, bringing those to bear on what you do. So, of course, that, there are many different kinds of meditation, and um, most of them are. And many of them have nothing to do with kind of relaxing. Right. And one of those things is, I think it's called dependent origination. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So... One thing that Buddhism does is describe the way the, the world works and its parts, including people, 
And a, a core Buddhist view, I don't want to call it physics or metaphysics, is that we live in a causal flux. And nothing is permanent. Things come into existence when causes or conditions are right. Um, they hang around for a while, uh, interacting with other things, and then they go out of existence. Um, so everything is impermanent, and the impermanent things in life live in this causal flux, uh, which is sometimes called dependent origination. The Sanskrit name is Pratijasamapada. Um, and if you see the world this way, then you understand it a lot better because, you know, this is one of the things which Buddhism gets dead right. You know, you are not going to live forever. Uh, your car's not going to last forever. The United States is not going to last forever. The earth is not going to live forever. These are things which come into existence at a certain time for certain causal reasons and then go out in the end. Um, and once you see that there's nothing permanent, that makes you sort of look at the world in a certain way um, and adopt certain attitudes towards what happens. Um, I know I won't live forever. I know what my kids won't live forever. I know many relationships I've had and will have won't last forever, if only because one of us is going to die, you know. Um, so, I mean... How do you react to this? Well, that, I mean, that's another question, but your question was about dependent origination. And it, it, it's actually a core part of the Buddhist analysis of the way that the world we know and love and hate sometimes works. Hmm. And is, I guess I, I'm, how does it, how does, so is this something is this something that is cog cognized like in a meditation is one i guess does one trace is it is dependent origination the act of tracing the kind of causal links between everything trying to situate you know, kind of our conversation right now in the context of every, or in the context of all of these other things that fortuitously needed to have aligned such that we're here? Is that how it works? The dependent origination is not your cognizance of this fact. Uh, it's the way the world works. Okay. Um, of course, we, we can never know everything about the way the world works. It's far too complex. But... Um, it is important to be cognizant of this fact. So well, let's just think about this interview. Okay. Um, first of all, there's your history. You know, how did you get into a position to hear about me? Uh, what was it that made you interested in me? Um, why did you decide to do this interview? These are all things about you. But then let's think about this a bit more broadly. Um, I mean, how did you learn about philosophy? Who taught you? Who wrote the books that you read? Who provided the technology that you're using to talk to me? I saw you drinking something. I don't know quite what it was. Maybe like water or something. Where did the water come from? You know, how did it get purified? 
all right, now that's all cause, now effect. You're going to broadcast this. People are going to listen to it on a podcast. Um, what effect is it going to have on them? Maybe very little. Maybe some people have a, a larger effect. Um, one thing you're doing, and I'm doing now, is expending a lot of energy. Okay, because all this technology we're using is um, heavy, intensive, okay? And, of course, that's contributing to global warming. So, you know, this very discussion that we're having now sits right in the middle of a causal nexus of things that have led up to it and things that are going to go on to it. Now, as I say, there's no way you can understand all these things because it's far too complex. But if you understand that what is happening now is part of this causal nexus, then you can see how important it is to be aware of all these, all these causal connections, if only so that you can do good things and use them in a proper fashion. Mm. Don't exploit the people who've produced your water or whatever. And um, you think about what you do with your energy source, you turn the lights off. I mean, that's, that's trivial, but you, you know what I mean? So, I mean, one, once you see these connections, the, the implications of our acts become really salient in a way that they had never been before, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that, that is, I guess, cognizance of the amazing combination of things that happen um, in order for anything to happen, I imagine also has huge kind of uh, ethical consequences. Um, uh, yeah. It means that, you know, your actions are the results and the cause of things which are implicated in enormous ethical consequences. Uh, you know, if you ask someone, now say we live in an interconnected world and, you know, of course that's pretty obvious, but unless you think about it, the depth of the interconnection or the breadth of the interconnection uh, is something I think we're generally quite blind to because we don't think about how what I'm doing right here and now is the result of all these network causal influences and the, the, the effects, the, the ramifications of all the effects that your actions have. Right, right. And I think this is something that... Um yeah, that is totally overlooked by kind of uh, pop psychology mindfulness. Um, because, yeah, I think this, I guess, I think I've accidentally kind of um, paid attention or, or begun thinking about um, the amazing causal connectedness of things. Um, but in kind of you know, listening to my friends and downloading, you know, trendy mindfulness apps. It seems like, you know, the opposite is often what they're encouraging people to do, to kind of um, pay attention to, you know, the movement of thoughts. And that's kind of, you know, and then a kind of still, a calm stillness is the desired outcome. Not, and definitely not a kind of... Uh, cognizance of one's positionality in the context of a, a web of of moving parts um so yeah i think 
I don't know. I'm kind of sad that I'm really sad that that hasn't been part of that. That's been left out of, uh, well, various meditation techniques are, of course, part of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, th these meditation techniques don't come from nowhere. I mean, they're based on an understanding of the world we live in, hmm. causes and effects. Um, and, of course, like you know, anything, you can sort of cherry pick. You can pull out the little bits that are going to help you uh, to relax or to make money or whatever. Um, but in the end... It, in Buddhism, it's all part of this bigger picture of the world in which we live and uh, the way we understand how it works. Hmm. And is and the goal, maybe this is crude, too crude to say, but is the goal of Buddhism to become enlightened? Well, the, the quick answer is yes. Okay, okay. But, but, I mean, you know... Um, uh, the question is, what the hell do you mean by that? So, you know, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that life it has problems. You know, we all are unhappy, we get frustrated, we get ill, we lose our kids or our partners, we die in the end. You know, um, these are things you don't have much control over. You don't have much control over many of the causes and effect, the causes of the things that happen to you. Um, and often this makes us very unhappy. Okay. Well, um, you don't have much control over the things that happen to you. I mean, I may get COVID, you may get COVID. That's not something we can do much about. You know, we can take precautions, but in the end, uh, you may get it anyway or whatever. But one thing you do have control over is your headspace, the attitude you bear, you bring to bear on the things that happen to you. That's something you can control. And um, so Buddhism says, look, uh, you know, life is shit sometimes. Uh, if you don't want to suffer, just think about your headspace um, because you can make you can make the world a lot better for yourself just by changing your, your headspace. Um, and uh, if you change your headspace enough, then you will ha live a much happier life. That's enlightenment, okay? Hmm. Enlightenment is not sort of dying and going to heaven. Enlightenment is doing things about making your life better and then as well, helping everybody else to make their life better too. That's enlightenment. Hmm. So enlightenment's a very natural process. You know, um, uh, if you're a religious Buddhist, you'll say, well, you can get so good at this that you will end all your unsatisfactoriness, all your suffering, and by the way, help everybody else to do that too. Um, religious Buddhists will tell you this is possible. I, I don't believe it, but that doesn't mean that you can't make things an awful lot better by doing this stuff, right? You know, Buddhism is a religion, but it's also a philosophy. As I said, you know, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the philosophical ideas of Buddhism, but I, I certainly wouldn't call myself a religious Buddhist. Right. And 
I imagine that for uh, a lot of a lot of people trained in Western analytic philosophy, there is a uh, I guess either a, yeah, there's a there's a naturalism, a scientific naturalism that is that uh, seems to be the stock position for I guess Western philosophy departments to adopt. Um, at least in my experience, um, that that's been kind of the key the key position, um, and I imagine that that isn't doing any favors for the uh, invitation or the um, the yeah the the combining of Western philosophy with Eastern philosophy. Um, and I mean, maybe that comes from a place of ignorance. Um, I guess we can speculate about reasons why West, uh, Western philosophy may be hostile towards Eastern philosophy. But I guess one thing that it seems like your work has tried to do is use logic or use use um, maybe dialethism. I'm not sure if 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 that if this is if your defense of it is something that opens Western philosophy up to Eastern philosophy. But it I don't know, is, is is this something that is this bridge or this cleft between West and Eastern philosophy driven by scientific naturalism, is that something that can be kind of undone or is the cleft something that can be bridged by accepting contradictions or something? Well, let's take a step back. There's no such thing as Eastern philosophy. There's no such thing as Western philosophy. Um, you know, Plato is not Aquinas, is not Kant or Hegel, is not Mill, is not Quine, is not Heidegger. Um, there are many different traditions in Western philosophy. Um, and of course, there are many different traditions in Eastern philosophy as well. You know, the Chinese, there are different traditions in Chinese philosophy and Indian philosophy. And even within one kind of relatively continuous tradition, like the Buddhist tradition, there are many disagreements. And, um, so you, you can't talk about Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. Um, now... Western philosophy was, or Western philosophers were dominated, I think, by Christianity between about the fourth century and the 17th, 18th century. Um, so religion has played a, an absolutely central role in many aspects of Western philosophy. Um, religion has played an important role in many, many aspects of, of Eastern philosophy as well. Um, I don't think it's played a role in all of them. I don't think that Confucianism is a religion. I don't think that Taoism is a religion. Um, so there's plenty of, of, of parts of Eastern philosophy which don't have anything much to do with religion. But as I say, you, you'll find religious the importance of religious views in Eastern philosophies as just as much as you do in the Western philosophy. Um, so that's not a difference between the two kind of zones. As it were. One, one, I think probably the biggest area of difference 
between the East and the West in this regard is the fact that the scientific revolution occurred in the West. Um, and this had a major impact on the way that philosophy was done in the 17th, 18th century, as science became to be a much more integral part of the way that people in the West viewed the world. I don't think this ever happened so much in the East, uh, just because the scientific revolution was at least initially a, a Western phenomenon. Um, and it has affected the way that uh, Western philosophers tend to see the world, although not exclusively. I mean, um, there are plenty of Western philosophers who work in areas where science doesn't play an enormous important role, like aesthetics, for example. Um, and I don't think that there is anything particularly antithetical to a kind of naturalistic worldview of a kind that's relatively popular with many Western philosophers. Um, and many of the Buddhist, or many of the Asian philosophical traditions. Um, I mean, you know, Buddhism, for example, has always been a kind of naturalist philosophy. Um, there's no God in Buddhism, so there's no divine revelation. In the end, you've got to figure things out for yourself, as the Buddha says in one of the sutras. Um, and uh, much of the Buddhist views about the way the world works and what people are, have been kind of confirmed by scientific developments. Um, you know, the, the Buddhist views about what a person is. Are, the person is just essentially a bunch of parts which are in this constant state of causal development that come to existence and go out of existence. And that's exactly the way that modern science thinks about the nature of people, right? Um, uh, so in many ways, you know, um, Ancient Buddhists, I think, would have been very happy with modern scientific developments. Of course, you know, some of the traditional Buddhist views have been overthrown and probably more will be. But, you know, the Dalai Lama said, if, um, if science comes into conflict with Buddhist views, then, well, in the end, it's the Buddhist views that have to go. Um, so it's not as though it, it's an either-or thing. I mean, you know, both our natural understanding of the world and the kind of understanding of the world's social, personal, ethical that you find in Buddhism are not incompatible at all. They just paint a bigger picture of how we understand the world in which we live. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, and do you see, do you see maybe Buddhist philosophy becoming part of of Western philosophy departments? Do you see it becoming something that is taught more? Um, I'm not sure if you've been keeping abreast with uh, the contents of subjects at Melbourne University, but it seems like there is a real kind of, there's a demand, but also um, a, an, there's a demand fr from both students and from staff to have things like Buddhist philosophy um, being taught. Um, and I wonder whether I wonder whether it's the same, you know, as you go further west in the world and away from, um, away from, I guess, you know, the east. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think? 
Um, okay, step back slightly. Um, the understanding of the Asian philosophical traditions and the teaching of them and researching them has not been a part of uh, the Western canon. I mean, there have been philosophers like Hegel and Schopenhauer who knew something about them. But uh, at least until relatively recently, you wouldn't find any courses on Asian philosophy, Asian traditions in Western philosophy. That's changing slowly. Um, And the fact that Western philosophy departments hadn't taught these things are partly a function of the fact they didn't know about it. You can't teach something unless you know it. If you're not taught, you don't know. You've got to make a special effort to go and find out. Um, so it's partly the situation is kind of self-perpetuating. But you cannot deny that, at least historically, and maybe even at present, there's been prejudice against the Asian traditions, that they're not philosophy. Um, their kind of religion or great man traditions or meditation practice. You know, um, it must be said that the people who held these views held them largely out of ignorance because as soon as you start to read the texts, you cannot but see that these are rich philosophical traditions. Um, and the situation now where we teach very little of the Asian traditions still, um, and yet we call ourselves departments of philosophy, it's kind of outrageous. You know, why not call yourself the Department of Western Philosophy if that's all you're going to teach? Um, okay, so that's the bad side. The good side is that things are slowly changing. Um, things are slowly changing as, well, it's kind of an internal reason, an external reason. Western philosophers are now starting to read these bloody texts and find out how good they are, right? How interesting and important the ideas are. Um, and the external reason is that uh, the center of gravity of the economic world is moving east. So, um, the socioeconomic structure of the world is forcing us to become engaged with the East in a way that the, uh, the West hasn't been. I mean, it has, of course, it's had an engagement with the East. It's sort of dominated it, it's imperialized it. But part of that is putting down the traditions as inferior, um, which is sort of part of the attitude that I think many philosophers have had to the Asian traditions. Um, so, you know, um, the fact that we're now paying more attention to the East is partly intrinsic and partly extrinsic. Um, and I mean, in Australia, most of the universities that I know have at least one or two courses on the Asian traditions. It's not so common in the United States, but um, in that way, I think Australia's a bit more advanced. Um, and uh, so you're, you're seeing more people in the West who are doing research on the Asian philosophical traditions who are published on it. You're seeing more journals. Uh, so this is good. I mean, you know, the, the East has had to come to terms with Western philosophy for, uh, for at least 200 years because of uh, Western imperialism. So most of the philosophers in India and Japan and China will know about large chunks of Western philosophy, whether it's Heidegger or Marx or Wittgenstein or whatever. Um, 
And often their thinking has been informed by Eastern and Western traditions. People in the West haven't had to do this because we've been the imperialists, okay? Well, you know, we ain't anymore, or at least uh, some places are trying to be still, but they're not as successful as they were 100 years ago. So uh, the, the time is changing and we're, we're going to have to do what the people in the East have, you know, been doing for 200 years. Mm. Yeah. I think one one question that this leads me to think about is whether, I guess, meta-philosophy, that is, you know, what what is philosophy or the philosophy of philosophy, whether that is something that is culturally and historically contingent or whether and whether it will change or will always change based on attitudes and political relations and economic relations. Uh, I know that you've done some metaphilosophy. Um, I actually read your paper recently um, because I wrote an essay on it. <laughs> um, the one that you wrote on Wittgenstein and Derrida. Um, yeah, and yeah, how, how, how do you understand metaphilosophy and how do you understand the definition of, of philosophy? Yeah. Well, metaphilosophy is the philosophy of philosophy. And in particular, uh, what is it? How do you go about doing it? And so on. Um, and that interests a number of philosophers nowadays. But in truth, this is not a new subject. The, the, the philosophy of philosophy has always been an integral part of philosophy. You know, read, uh, um, read Plato, read Kant, read Wittgenstein, read Heidegger. I mean, many of the great philosophers have had a view about the nature of philosophy, how you pursue it, its limitations, etc. So this is not new. I mean, what is philosophy is a profound philosophical question. And like most profound philosophical questions, there's no easy answer. Um, and... Uh, I think maybe many philosophers got this profound philosophical question in parts of the 20th century. If it's coming back into view, well, good job, because it's a great philosophical question. Hmm. Okay, well, Graham, we've been talking for nearly an hour and 15 minutes, um, and we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and yeah, I, I would like to thank you very, very deeply for taking the time to talk with me. Um, and and talk about your philosophy. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks very much. Thank you for your thoughts. I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk philosophy, especially with, you know, someone who shares one's interests and ideas and so on. So thank you very much.